Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'll be your tour guide through hell in service of heaven. We're talking about the Battle of Antioch and the First Crusade, and we're going all the way. But before we can do that, I've got to thank Gene from Seattle and Will from sunny Gainesville, Florida, for buying our beer tonight. And if you want to buy us a beer, head on over to the website and hit the donate button. I just want to thank everybody who shares the show on social media. Really appreciate that. Now, it's been crazy around here lately, man. I've just been going insane. I couldn't figure out a time to get this thing recorded, and I'm finally glad that I'm sitting down in the middle of the month to get it done. And between me and you and the hole in the wall, it's always great to be able to show my wife, hey, look, we've had over 3,000 listeners. This isn't a total waste of my time. No, of course I'm not trying to avoid cleaning up the projectile vomit the kids have hosed all over the living room. Of course I'm not just drinking tropical IPAs while I watch documentaries on the Battle of Waterloo in the basement. Of course not. And after that speech, she usually comes back from her mom's house after about a week or two. So since she's gone, I'm going to go ahead and record this bad boy. And now, let's jump into the First Crusade and the Battle of Antioch. On a cold November morning in 1095, Pope Urban II stepped up to a lectern and delivered a sermon that would change the history of the world. His sermon would make most preachers blush with shame and eat their hands these days. Oh, why couldn't our religion have started in 1964, they think to themselves. Why do we have to have 2,000 years of embarrassing history? But regardless of the effet reactions of our modern-day so-called clergy, this is what one chronicler had Pope Urban say. Oh, you Franks, people from across the mountains, people chosen and beloved by God, as shines forth in your works, which set you apart from all the nations by the achievements of your country, as well as by your Catholic faith in the honor of the most holy church. We wish you to know what a grievous cause has led us to your country and what perils threatens even you and threatens all Christendom combined. From the confines of Jerusalem in the city of Constantinople, a horrible tale has come forth and been brought to our ears, namely, that a people from the Persian lands, an accursed people, a people utterly alienated from God, has invaded the lands of those Christians and has depopulated them by the sword and by pillage and by fire, and is led away apart and made them slaves in its own country, and apart it has destroyed by cruel tortures. It has entirely destroyed the churches of God, or abused them with the rites of their own religion, and they destroy the altars. And after having defiled them with their uncleanness, they circumcise the Christians, and the blood of the circumcision they either spread upon the altars, or pour into vases of the baptismal font. And when they wish to torture people by a base death, they perforate their navels and dragging forth the extremity of the intestines, bind it to a stake. Then, with flogging, they lead the victim around until the viscera having gushed forth, the victim falls prostrate upon the ground. Others they bind to a post and they pierce with arrows. Others they compel to extend their necks and then, attacking them with naked swords, attempt to cut through the neck with a single blow. And what shall I say of the abominable rape? of the women, to speak of it is worse than to be silent. And the kingdom of the Greeks is now dismembered by them, and deprived of territory so vast in extent that it cannot be traversed in a march of two months. Who is supposed to avenge these wrongs? I tell you truly, it is you who must right these wrongs. It is you upon whom God has conferred remarkable glory and arms, great courage, bodily activity, and strength to humble the hairy scalp 
of those who would dare resist you and the Most High God. Let the deeds of your ancestors move you and incite your minds to manly achievements, the glory and the greatness of King Charles the Great and of his son Louis and of your other kings who have destroyed the kingdoms of the pagans and have extended in these lands the territory of the Most Holy Church. Let the holy grave of the Lord our Savior which is possessed by unclean nations, especially incite you. And the holy places, which are now treated with horrible irreverence and polluted with their filthiness, O most valiant soldiers and descendants of invincible ancestors, be not degenerate, but recall the valor of your own forefathers. But if you are hindered by love of children, parents, and wives, remember what the Lord himself says in the gospel. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And everyone that hath forsaken homes or brethren or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Let none of your possessions detain you. Let therefore hatred depart from among you. Let your quarrels end. Let war cease. And let all dissensions and controversies slumber. Enter upon the road to Christ's holy grave. Rest that land from the wicked people and subject it to yourselves. Win the royal city at the center of the world. Even now, while I speak, she is held captive by God's own enemies and is in subjection to the heathen. She seeks therefore and yearns to be liberated and does not seek to implore you to come to her aid. And when Pope Urban had cried these things, he so influenced to one purpose the desires of all who were present that they cried out, It is the will of God! It is the will of God! And when the venerable pontiff heard that, with eyes uplifted to heaven, he gave thanks to God, and with his hand commanding silence said, Oh, my most beloved brethren, Today is manifest in you what the Lord says in the gospel. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Therefore I say to you that God, who has put this saying in your hearts, has impelled it forth from you. Let this be your war cry in combat, because this word is given to you by God. And when you go into battle against the enemy, let this one cry be raised by all the soldiers of God. It is the will of God. It is the will of God Almighty. And whosoever, therefore, shall determine upon this holy pilgrimage and shall make his vow to God to that effect and shall offer himself to the Holy One as a living sacrifice shall wear the sign of the cross of the Lord on his forehead or on his breast. And by this you will fulfill the Lord's command in the gospel. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me, end quote. There was a time when all of Western civilization was united, a time that the founders of the EU could only dream of. It was the time of Christendom. There was unity underneath the disunity, just like everything mankind touches. But underneath it all, there was an essential connection between the peoples of Europe and how different the bloody history of the world might have been had this fundamental unity been maintained instead of squandered by corruption. So many lives lost because of men's vanity, their lust for money, and corruption. And the Catholic Church practically begged for a reformation, and Europe's ancient unity was shattered. Such is always the fruit of abject corruption. And if you don't believe me, just ask the three million people starving in Zimbabwe right now. 
all across Europe, but especially in France, men answered Pope Urban's call to arms. According to modern historians, anywhere between 60,000 and 100,000 Christians from across Europe answered the call for holy war. Popular, itinerant preachers took up the cause and traveled across the continent calling men to war for the cross. The preachers operated similar to modern-day evangelists. They would travel from town to town and hold meetings. These fiery preachers would fill their audiences with passion and give the impression to their listeners that anyone who died on the crusade would have guaranteed salvation and become sacred martyrs. This was the idea of warrior martyrdom that spread across the ranks of the crusaders. Slowly, contemporary writers began to call the men crusaders from the French term croissade, which translates to the way of the cross. Here is the Christian answer to the samurai, the Christian way of the warrior, similar to the samurai concept of the path of the warrior. One more thing I want to point out is that all the lands the Christians are going to invade had at one time, fairly recently in many cases, not in all cases, admittedly, they had one time been predominantly Christian. Palestine, modern Lebanon, much of modern Syria, all of modern Turkey had all been Christian lands. Much of modern Turkey was Christian well into the 11th century. Even North Africa was largely Christian territory. All these cultures were wiped out in the Muslim onslaught. And they didn't play hopscotch to get it, too. In two raids on the island of Cyprus, 150,000 Greek Christians were enslaved, raped, and forcibly converted to Islam. This was the first Muslim crusade, the one no one ever talks about. Robert Hoyland's great book, In the Path of God, details the Arab conquest of the Byzantine and Persian empires. And all through these centuries of sporadic but continuous warfare, Christians in the warpath of Islam had consistently called for help from their brothers in Western Europe. This is the necessary but all too often unspoken context for understanding the Crusades. The Crusaders had a legitimate, if tenuous, claim to the Holy Land. And just to be clear, I'm not advocating for the West to engage in warfare in Islamic lands at all. I know some thin-skinned people listening to the show, and you constantly complain that I'm advocating some kind of violence. That is not the case. I want to be clear, it is better to suffer some slight wrongs than to let loose the bloody gates of war. It's always hard to get them closed again. I don't want anyone to suffer at all. I've read enough about it to know how terrible it is. But I don't want to mask the truth of history either. So right now, I'm just trying to correctly set the stage for the crusade, not justify anything in the modern world today. Now at this time, one of the most remarkable itinerant evangelists was Peter the Hermit, a Frenchman. Here's how Thomas Asbridge describes Peter, quote, Originating from a poor background in France, he became renowned for his austere lifestyle, repellent appearance, and unusual eating habits. He lived on wine and fish. He hardly ever ate bread. By modern standards, he might be deemed a vagabond. But among the poor classes of 11th century France, he was revered as a prophet. He was so loved that his followers collected the hairs of his mule as relics. A Greek contemporary noted, as if he had sounded a divine voice in the hearts of all, Peter the Hermit inspired the Franks from everywhere to gather together with their weapons, horses, and arms. Peter had gathered an army of more than 15,000 Christians ready to die for the Holy Land, end quote. Peter's army was slowly joined by contingents from Germany and became known as the People's Crusade. This was the first army to make their way to the Holy Land in the spring of 1096, months before the more disciplined formal armies. 
These crusaders journeyed from France to Germany and then to Constantinople, and when they set foot on Muslim territory, they were quickly destroyed. Religious fervor apparently didn't compensate for their total lack of military training and ill discipline. Peter the Hermit, however, survived. Here's how the anonymous contemporary writer of the Gesta Francorum describes the end of the People's Crusade. Quote, the Byzantine emperor was enraged at the poor conduct of the first Christians, and he ordered them across the Bosphorus Straits into Muslim territory. There they found a certain fortress which was empty of people, and they seized it. The Turks, hearing that the Christians were in the fortress, came to besiege it. And before the gate of the fortress was a storage tank, and at the foot of the fortress was a fountain of running water, near which some Christians went out to trap the Turks. But the Turks found them, and killed many of them, trapping them in the process, ramming lances through their ill-trained hearts. Those who remained alive fled to the fortress, which the Turks straightaway besieged, thus depriving the men inside of water. Our people were in such distress from thirst that they bled their horses and asses and drank the blood. Some urinated into one another's hollowed hands and drank, and others dug up the moist ground and lay down on their backs and spread the earth over their chest to relieve the excessive dryness of thirst. The bishops and the priests continued to comfort our people, saying, Be everywhere strong in the faith of Christ, and do not fear those who persecute you. Just as the Lord saith, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. This distress lasted for eight days. Then a traitor made an agreement with the Turks to surrender his companions to them, and, feigning to go out to fight, he fled to the Turks and many with him. Those, however, who were unwilling to deny the Lord received the sentence of death. Some who the Muslims took alive they divided among themselves like sheep. Some they placed as a target and shot with arrows. Others they sold and gave away like animals. Some they took captive to their own home. Those were the first to receive a happy martyrdom in the name of the Lord Jesus. Next, the Turks, hearing that Peter the Hermit and Walter the Penniless were in the area, went there with great joy to kill them and those men who were with them. And when they had come, they encountered Walter with all of his men, whom the Turks soon killed. With these people they found a certain priest celebrating Mass, whom they straightaway martyred upon the altar. Those who could escape fled. Others hurled themselves headlong into the sea, smashing their bodies across the stones, while some hid in the forests and mountains. But the Turks, pursuing them to the fortress, collected wood to burn them with the fort. The Christians who were in the fort, therefore, set fire to the wood that had been collected, and the fire, turning in the direction of the Turks, cremated some of the infidels. But from the fire the Lord delivered our people at that time. Nevertheless, the Turks took them alive and divided them just as they had done the others, selling them into slavery. This all happened in the month of October. End quote. Meanwhile, back in Europe, the evangelists were still recruiting tens of thousands of men to the Christian banner, forming the core of the First Crusade's professional army. And in this army, there were approximately 80,000 Christians, of which about 8,000 were highly trained knights. Now, of these 80,000 Christians, about 30,000 were non-combatants. We're talking women and children, some servants. So if these guys fail, their women and kids will be killed or enslaved by the Muslims they are fighting. I want to stress that these numbers are estimates. No one knows the actual numbers of participants. You don't have to send those emails. I can say, however, this was the largest military force ever assembled since the fall of Rome. Now, the core of the army was made up of aristocratic knights. These men wore heavy armor for the day, chain mail, conical helmets, metal-wrapped wooden shields, but their armor couldn't stop a solid thrust or cut. Armed with lances, two-handed swords more useful for bludgeoning than elegantly cutting, and longbows, these 8,000 knights had trained for war all of their lives. That's all they did. 
One historian describes the aristocratic elements of the First Crusade this way, quote, While no kings joined the expedition, the cream of Western Christendom's nobility was drawn to the venture. Members of the high aristocracy of France, Western Germany, the Low Countries, and Italy, from the class directly below the royalty, bearing the titles of duke or count, were often as powerful as kings, and they wielded considerable independent authority. Each of these leading figures commanded their own military contingents. Now, the first prince to join the crusade was Count Raymond of Toulouse, the most powerful man in southern France. At the time, he was around 55, he had immense wealth and took command of much of the French-speaking sections of the crusading army. According to legend, Count Raymond had already crusaded against the Moors in Spain. Moreover, it's said that during a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, one of his eyes had been cut out of his head for his refusal to pay a Muslim tax on Christian pilgrims. Are these stories true? We don't know. But what we do know is that Raymond was a key leader of the First Crusades. And another key leader was Bohemond of Ternato a 40-year-old Italian Norman. His father had conquered Sicily a generation before. Now the Viking Bohemond was going to carve his own kingdom out of the shanks of the Holy Land. Bohemond had extensive military experience at the highest levels, fighting with his father across the Balkans for over four years. And because of his experience, many crusaders looked to Bohemond for advice and leadership. And here's how one contemporary described him, quote, The sight of Bohemond inspired admiration. The mention of his name struck terror. His stature was such that he towered almost two feet above regular men, like we were grasshoppers confronting a giant. He was slender of waist and flanks, with a broad chest, strong in arms. His skin was very white, his hair light brown. His eyes were light blue and gave him the appearance of dignity. There was an indefinable charm about him, but also a hard, savage quality in his whole aspect. Even his laugh sounded like a threat to others, in quote. Bohemond, with the help of his nephew Tancred, were the leaders of the southern Italian contingent, and Tancred would go on to become a key leader of the crusading cause in his own right. Another key member of our cast of characters is the Duke Godfrey of Bouillon, a descendant of Charlemagne himself. From Lorraine, here's how one chronicler described him, quote, He was taller than the average man and strong beyond compare with a barrel chest. His features were pleasing, his hair was blonde, end quote. Now, Godfrey was the leader of the troops from Lorraine and Germany, and his brother Baldwin of Boulon also helped command this contingent. He would become one of the Crusades' most tenacious fighters. Now, why did I list off this cast of characters for you, giving proof to Shakespeare's maxim that life is but a stage? I'll let Thomas Asbridge answer that. Quote, These five princes, Raymond of Toulouse, Bohemond of Taranto, Godfrey of Bouillon, Tancred of Hauteville and Baldwin of Boulon will play pivotal roles in the expedition to reclaim Jerusalem, leading three of the main Frankish armies and shaping the early history of the Crusades. Yet another contingent of men from northern France would join these princes to form the main body of the first crusading army, end quote. Before the army left, however, there was a crucial ceremony for each man, even the poorest. They knew the journey would be long and hard. They knew many of them would never return, cut down for Christ. But hadn't Christ, the perfect man, been cut down for them? How could they sit in peace with lust on their minds as Christian pilgrims were abused in the Holy Land itself? So each man made a crusading vow to journey to Jerusalem similar to a pilgrimage vow and then marked their status by sewing a cross onto their clothes. Here's how one one chronicler describes Bohemond's vow, quote, 
Inspired by the Holy Ghost, Bohemond ordered the most valuable cloak, which he had cut up forthwith and made into crosses. And most of the knights that were with him began to join with him at once in sewing it onto their clothing." Other crusaders went further than Bohemond. They literally had themselves branded with the glowing orange cross of Christ, their friends manhandling them down as the smoking metal singed their tender flesh. Still other men inscribed their bodies or clothes with blood. All of these paragraphs can be summarized in one sentence. These guys meant business. They would conquer or die. Beginning in November 1096, the main armies of the First Crusade began arriving in Constantinople, which at the time was the capital of the Greek-speaking Byzantine Empire and is today modern-day Istanbul. When they arrived, they were given a cautious welcome by the Emperor Alexius. It's no small thing to have 50,000 hungry and lustful men crowding into your city. and There was some minor infighting, but for the most part, the Greeks and the Crusaders got along fairly well. Here is where the first problem started. Many of the crusaders had expected Alexius himself to combine his army with the crusader army and lead them to the gates of Jerusalem. After all, it was Alexius who had asked Pope Urban for aid in 1095 in the first place. But Alexius had no intention of risking his own army in an expedition to the Holy Land. He was more than happy to give the crusaders a pat on the back and a lunchbox and send them on their way to do the fighting, though. This lack of leadership from Alexius formed a power vacuum and led to the top five princes I introduced to you a few minutes ago vying for leadership of the expedition. But how do you decide who to follow? They're all trained aristocrats with similar training and titles. Who do you follow? Besides that, there's ethnic differences. Some are from Germany. Some are from the Netherlands. Some are from modern-day Italy. Who are you going to follow? But before factions could break the army apart, the Crusaders amassed in Asia Minor in February 1097. Their numbers slowly built up to about 75,000 people, and of these, only 7,500 were knights and 35,000 were lightly armed infantry. They were in lands formerly held by the Byzantines, and Alexius hoped to use the Crusaders to reconquer his lost mainland. Their first target was Nicaea, the famous town where the first Christian Ecumenical Council was held. This was a special point in Christian history. It was here that the famous doctrines of Orthodox Christians everywhere, whether Protestant, Roman, and Eastern, were first hammered out, the Nicene Creed. Now this place where the Spirit had moved the minds of God's bishops, this sacred place, was in the hands of the infidels. Nicaea would be Christian again. Nicaea must be Christian again. And on May 6th, the Crusaders arrived to the town. The city was ringed by a 30-foot-tall wall, and what was worse was it was on a giant lake, thus enabling the small Islamic garrison to constantly be resupplied from the water. To this formidable city, the Christians laid siege. On May 16th, another Muslim army outside the city tried to surprise the besieging Christians. The Muslims poured out from the wooded hills on the southern end of the city, but a turncoat had given away the secret, and so the crusaders were waiting for them. A modern historian says what happens next, quote, When the Muslim assault began, the Christians were ready and through sheer weight of numbers forced the Muslims to retreat. They escaped with most of their army intact, but the morale of the Islamic Nicaea garrison collapsed. Hoping to accentuate enemy desperation, the Crusaders decapitated hundreds of Turkish dead, parading their heads upon spikes before the city and even throwing some over the walls in order to cause more terror. 
I want you to picture that in your minds, a parade of hundreds of human heads. In the coming weeks, the Nicene Turks retaliated using iron hooks attached to ropes to haul up any Christian corpse near the walls and then hanging these cadavers from the walls to rot like a satanic Christmas decoration. After repulsing the Muslim attack, the Crusaders used two styles of siege warfare at the same time. First, they blockaded the city's landward walls. Next, they carried on a prolonged siege. Early attempts to storm the city with ladders had failed, so the Crusaders worked on making holes in the wall. They also harassed the Turks with stone-throwing machines. Now, the Crusaders are sapping the walls of Nicaea by hand. This is a nightmare gauntlet. The Crusaders braved hot oil, arrows, rocks, and burning pitch just to get to the walls in the first place. The hot oil was especially feared because it would worm into men's armor and cook them as they desperately tried to remove their cumbersome equipment. It was like being microwaved. Still, they assaulted the walls by hand. By mid-June, the Crusaders had made very little progress. They reached out to Alexius for help, and Alexius gave it. He sent a small fleet of Greek ships 20 miles overland to the lake. On June 18th, these ships sailed towards Nicaea's ocean-facing walls, while the Crusaders launched a simultaneous landward attack. After a few hours of fighting, the Muslim garrison sued for peace, and the Byzantines, not the Crusaders, took possession of the city. Still, Alexius, nobody's fool, flooded the Crusader army with hard cash, so many of the soldiers were content. A contemporary describes the state of the Crusader army, quote, We were engaged in that siege for seven weeks and three days, and many of our men there received martyrdom, and glad and rejoicing gave back their happy souls to God. Many of the very poor died of hunger for the name of Christ, and these bore triumphantly to heaven their robes of martyrdom, crying with one voice, Avenge, Lord, our our blood which has been shed for thee, who are blessed and praiseworthy forever and ever. Amen. In the meanwhile, the emperor Alexius rejoiced because the city had been surrendered to his power. He ordered food and money to be distributed to our poor, end quote. Next, Alexius and the Western princes held a council of war. There, modern historians believe, they decided on the next objective of the campaign, the city of Antioch. The plan was for the Crusader armies to take Antioch, while Alexius and his army followed from behind and mopped up resistance, garrisoning and policing the rear of the Crusader army as they traveled overland to Antioch. You'll notice this plan is heavily favored to Alexius's plan all along. To give you an idea where the Crusaders are heading, Antioch, it was located on the Mediterranean Ocean, what is modern-day Syria, literally a few miles away from the modern Turkish border. So they are attacking a city on the Mediterranean coast to the north of modern Lebanon and modern Israel. But in late June 1097, after the Crusaders had left Nicaea, the plan unraveled. Alexius wasn't there to provide leadership. He was busy raking in hundreds of miles of land and immeasurable wealth. Things began to fall apart. Thomas Asbridge picks up the story, quote, Essentially, the Crusader army was a composite force, one mass made up of many smaller parts drawn from across Western Europe. The men faced a communication barrier because they had no common tongue. And before the expedition, many of them had been enemies. They needed a resolute leader to guide them all, but from summer of 1097 onwards, the expedition had no leader. They made most of their decisions through group discussions, and surprisingly, the religious nature of their goals allowed them to meet with much success. From now on, a council made up of the leading princes met to set policy, end quote. 
The Crusaders' first problem was to decide how to cross Asia Minor. Because of their large size, the Crusade could not move forward as a single army. The princes chose to divide their forces in two while maintaining close contact during the march. That's when the unexpected happened. The Islamic scimitar would cut into them at the Battle of Dori Laim. On June 29, 1097, the two Crusader armies set off. Their plan was to rendezvous four days later at Dori Laim, but their enemy... Khalid Arslan, the Seljuk Sultan, had other plans. Anybody could see the Crusaders were split into two. It was the perfect time to strike. While they were dispersed, and Arslan did just that. On the morning of July 1st, he attacked the leading crusading army near an abandoned Byzantine camp called Dori Laim. The Gesta Francorum tells what happened next. The Turks made a violent assault on Bohemund and his companions. The Turks began unceasingly to scream in a loud voice, making devilish sounds in their own tongue. When Bohemund saw the innumerable Turks crying a diabolical sound, he straightway spoke to all his soldiers, My lords and strongest of Christ's men! A difficult battle is now building up around us. Let everyone advance against them courageously and boldly! By the time all this had been done, the Turks had already surrounded us on all sides. They attacked us, slashing, hurling, and shooting arrows far and wide. Although we could scarcely hold them back, or even bear up under the weight of such a host, nevertheless, we all managed to hold our ranks. Our women were a great blessing to us that day, for they carried drinking water to our fighting men and comforted the fighters and defenders. The wise bowman at once commanded the others, the rest of Christ's soldiers, he's talking about the second crusader army here, to make speed and to march quickly to the battle scene. He said, in a message, if they want to fight today, let them come with full force, end quote. A modern historian says what happened next. The Turks burst into the Crusader civilian camp in strength, striking with arrows, killing pilgrim foot soldiers, girls, women, infants, old people, sparing no one on grounds of age. The gray-haired dead looked like natural redheads, so much did the bright blood flow from their wounds, but the Crusaders rallied and beat the Turkish warriors back. To the Christians holding the line, the Turks seemed to fill the valley before them, a mosh pit of attacking humanity. An eyewitness explains what he saw. Quote, Our forces were then drawn up in one continuous battle line. Meanwhile, another group of Christians approached and surrounded the unbelieving Turks. The sudden appearance on the field of Christ's knights, who came up behind the Turkish flanks, threw the Turks into panic and assured victory for us. As soon as our knights arrived, the Arabs speedily took flight through the byways of the mountains, their numbers known only to God. With extraordinary speed, they took to their tents, but they were unable to remain there long. Again, they took flight, and we followed, killing many as we went for a whole day. We took many spoils, gold, silver, cattle, and many other things. Had the Lord not been with us in the battle, had he not suddenly sent us the other force, none of our men would escape, for the battle lasted all day long. Yet many of our men did die, and they sit at the right hand of God." End quote. Approximately 4,000 Christians were martyred on the fields of Dorylaeum. They died for the churches that now lie empty on Sunday across Western Europe and rot across the small towns of Europe, cut down not by the blows of enemies but by the vanity of men. You Europeans should remember the wisdom of Frank Herbert. Something cannot come from nothing. That is great wisdom. But I digress. 3,000 Turks also joined the Christians in death. They had fought hard, so hard, 
that the author of the Gesta Francorum praises their battle prowess at length, but the Christians close the circle on them anyway. The bravest man can be cut down by the smarter plan. Now nothing stood between the Crusaders and Antioch. Antioch was the key to the eastern Mediterranean, a choke point like Alaska in the board game Risk. It had to fall, and the Crusaders were literally praying it would. But the Christians faced a new enemy, hunger and thirst. Oh, that men had been made able to endure without water and bread, how much more our people might have accomplished. And disease made war on crusaders as well. I'll let a medieval chronicler describe the three-month march to Antioch. Overwhelmed by the anguish of thirst, as many as five hundred people died on the long, hot march. Horses, donkeys, mules, animals of all kind died with them, cut down from throat-parching thirst. Many men, growing weak from the exertion and the heat, gaping with open mouths like the mentally disabled, tried to catch whispers of the morning mist to cure their thirst. Now, while everyone was suffering, a river they had longed for suddenly was discovered. As they hurried towards it, they found new bursts of energy, their limbs excited by jolts of lightning, fast adrenaline. Each man wanted to be the first to slay his hunger of thirst at the banks of the river. They drank as if their appetites increased on what it fed upon. They drank like alcoholics escaped from the rehabilitation clinic. They drank so much a few men died from drinking the water. It was then that the weakness of the divided Christian leadership exposed itself. Prince Baldwin decided to break off from the main crusade army to carve out his own kingdom out of the borderlands between Syria and Mesopotamia. He left with just 100 knights, but these were no ordinary knights. They stormed through an area along the Euphrates like an angel of death, cutting down anyone who opposed them. Baldwin called himself the liberator of the indigenous Armenian Christians. Thoros, the elderly ruler of Edessa, adopted Baldwin as his son. A few months later, Thoros was killed, and Baldwin seized control of Edessa and the surrounding region, giving birth to the first crusader state, the county of Edessa. Meanwhile, the rest of the Christian army pressed on to the ancient city of Antioch. Antioch was founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals in 300 B.C. In the 600s, the city was overwhelmed in the initial Muslim conquest of the Middle East. The Byzantines retook the city in 969 A.D., but the Turks fell upon the city and retook it in 1085. This was ground zero of the war between Christian Europe and the Muslim East. Finally, the city came into view. The crusaders couldn't believe what they saw. One Christian wrote home saying the city seemed impregnable. It was nestled between a river and the foot of two mountains. Now when I say it was on the foot of two mountains, I mean the city actually was partially built on two mountains and the wall scaled the mountains more than 1,640 feet. This was the location of Antioch's citadel, the fortified highest point of the city. The Romans had built 60 towers and connected the towers by a 60-foot high wall that ran for over three miles around the city, but the city was not impregnable. There was a large Armenian and Greek Christian population inside who might aid the Christians. Still, to the men who saw the city for the first time, the defensive seemed overwhelming. Moreover, the major problem was the sheer length of Antioch's walls, three miles with six gates. It was impossible for the crusaders to adequately cover them all. 
Instead, the leaders of the Crusader army decided on a partial blockade in the last days of October, and their armies took up positions before the city's three northwestern gates. As the days bled into weeks, the Crusaders also tried to police Antioch's two southern gates. From now on, the war devolved into a grueling siege. From the autumn of 1097 onwards, the Christians committed themselves to the grinding reality of a medieval encirclement siege. Every day, the opposing sides skirmished with one another, but the essence of this type of warfare was physical and psychological endurance. For the Christians and the Muslims, morale was crucial, and each side readily employed an array of gruesome tactics to destroy their enemies' minds as well as their bodies. After winning a major battle in early 1098, the Crusaders decapitated more than 100 Muslim dead, stuck their heads upon spears, and gleefully repeated a parade before the walls of Antioch to increase the Turks' grief. The Muslims surreptitiously snuck out of the city and buried their dead. An eyewitness describes what the Christians did when they found out the Turks were buried before the walls. They ordered the bodies to be dug up and the tombs destroyed and the dead men dragged out of their graves. They threw all the corpses into a pit and cut off their heads. And when the Turks saw this, they were very sad and grieved almost to death. They lamented every day and did nothing but weep and howl, end quote. Picture in your mind the beginning of a UFC fight. Often the men will size each other up a quick jab here, maybe even a strong sidekick there, a lunge and a dodge. The two men circle one another for a large part of the initial fight, but no one's really winning. That's what the initial siege of Antioch was like. The Christians blocked three, four, five gates. Well, there was still one open. And so the two sides danced, jabbing and kicking each other. But nothing decisive happened for months. Endless, grinding months where death was always near. For their part. The Muslim garrison of Antioch began to publicly torture their indigenous Christian population. The Greek patriarch, who had lived in the city for decades, was dangled in front of the walls and beaten with iron rods as he hung from chains. They decapitated Christians and literally assaulted the crusaders with the heads of the murdered, slinging them with catapults into the Christian ranks. Crusaders taken prisoner were similarly tortured. Then the winter came and starvation came with it. The Crusader army was large, and they quickly exhausted the nearby food supplies. They were forced to range even farther from the city just to find the bare minimum to avoid starvation. Hunger stalked the men. One Armenian eyewitness remembered, because of the scarcity of food, mortality, and affliction fell on the Christian army to such an extent that one out of every five perished, and all the rest felt abandoned and homesick, mired with hunger. By January of 1098, Winter converted to Islam and fought against Christ. Hundreds, perhaps even thousands of crusaders died. One medieval chronicler remembered, The poor were reduced to eating dogs and rats, the skins of beasts and the seeds of grain found in dung. Here's how one eyewitness described the siege at Antioch in the winter. Now grain and all food began to be excessively dear before Christmas. We did not dare to go outside. We could find absolutely nothing to eat within the land of the Christians, and no one dared to enter the surrounding countryside of the Muslims without a great army. Finally, the Turks in the city of Antioch, enemies of God, came out from the city and boldly advanced to do battle with us. Knowing that many valiant knights were away requisitioning food, they lay in ambush for us everywhere. And when the expedition that had gone for food returned to camp, they had less supplies than when they had left, end quote. Many men, even moderately wealthy men, would have died were it not for the princes who led the expedition. 
They spent huge amounts of money at outrageously inflated prices to buy meager supplies from the surrounding Christian population. Still, the amount of food was too little, and men were eating the leather straps of their gear to try and beat back their ravaging hunger. I want you to remember the hungriest you've ever been. Now imagine lingering on like that for months, in bitter winter, exposed in the open air, a total nightmare. Still, the men refused to retreat or give up. Another eyewitness describes this scene this way. At that time, the famished ate the shoots of bean seeds growing in the fields and many kinds of herb unseasoned with salt, also thistles, which, being not well cooked because of the deficiency of firewood, pricked the tongues and the stomachs of those eating them. They also ate horses, donkeys, camels, and rats. The poor ones even ate the skins of beasts. And you guys listening in seminary, I'm talking to you pencil pushers and theoretical feminists at Candler School of Theology at Emory, maybe you ought to think about them starving at the gates of Antioch before you turn the entire gospel into symbols and allegories. These men weren't starving to death and getting their heads catapulted across the sunset for allegories. Anyway, the Christians began to believe they were cursed and God had turned his back against them because they actually believed in the plain teaching of Scripture. Indeed, their clergy took up this belief and preached that the Christian army had to be cleansed from their sins. Now, I know a lot of you, you're thinking, well, what does that mean? What is sin really? But the Crusaders and all devout Christians have a definition for sin. First John 3, 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, most Christians, at a minimum, would say the law is the Ten Commandments, which are repeated essentially verbatim in the New Testament and so are still binding on Christians today. And apparently, many of the Crusaders had become a little too intimate with some of the women in camp, a clear violation of the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Consequently, the women were banished from the camp, and the men offered fasting prayers and almsgiving to God in order to ask for repentance. And any man caught lying or cheating another Christian was severely physically punished. I'm talking about caning and whippings here. Nobody was talking about restorative justice at the siege of Antioch. This was the eye for the eye kind of justice. But don't take my word for it. Here's how Albert of Aiken described the punishment he witnessed. Quote, When indeed many of the pilgrims disobeyed the decree, they were put in chains. Others were flogged, others shaved and branded. In that place, a man and woman were caught in the very act of adultery, and they were stripped in the presence of all. Their hands were tied behind their backs, and they were severely whipped by strikers and rods, and were forced to go around the whole army so that when their savage wounds were seen, the rest would be deterred from such and so wicked a crime. Many lukewarm crusaders deserted. Only the hardcore remained, the few who take vows seriously and look death in the eye. The true believers. And then, the Byzantines on Cyprus sent supplies to the Christians besieging Antioch. It wasn't much, but it was enough to pull them through the winter. Banishing the women and asking forgiveness had worked. God had heard their supplications. Then the trickle of supplies turned into a reliable stream by spring, and there was less dead weight now that the weak had fled the siege. Only the strong were left. Food would not be wasted on them. 
In March, an English ship arrived with invaluable supplies and building materials. With these materials, the Christians fortified an abandoned mosque and turned it into a fort that controlled the main resupply routes of the Muslim garrison at Antioch. Now it was the Muslims' turn to feel the gnawing pinch of hunger. Now they were cut off, and their bellies nagged them like a wife in the third trimester of her pregnancy. Keep in mind, during this whole time, the armies are constantly skirmishing with one another. I could fill this podcast with stories of these small skirmishes, sometimes involving a few men, sometimes involving a few thousand. For example, on March 7th, the Muslim garrison made a sneak attack on the Crusader battle line. In a matter of seconds, a section of the Christian line was surrounded by Islamic horsemen, and the Crusaders, on foot, accidentally bit their tongues off as they fought for their lives, outnumbered in this one small section of the battle. If reinforcements didn't come soon, they would be walking the golden streets and joining the martyrs at the throne of God in heaven. Here's how one participant described the event, quote, The Turks wheeled around our men, throwing darts and loosing arrows, wounding and slaughtering them most brutally. Their attack was so fierce that our men began to flee. Those who could get away quickly escaped alive, and those who could not were killed, cut down. That's when the Christian reinforcements arrived and drove the Turks back to the bridge gate. The Muslims were beaten back. Here's how one medieval chronicler remembered the scene. They fled swiftly across the bridge to their gate. Those who did not succeed in crossing the bridge alive because of the great press of men and horses suffered their everlasting death with the devil and his imps. For we came after them, driving them into the river, throwing them down, so that the water of that swift stream seemed to be running red with the blood of Turks. And, if by chance any of them tried to climb up the pillars of the bridge or to reach the bank by swimming, he was stricken by our men who were standing all along the river bank." Over a thousand men from both sides died in this one skirmish, but still the siege dragged on. But then the Christians rendered another devastating blow against the Turks. If it were a UFC fight, they would have finally taken down their opponent after a round of light jabs and kicks. Finally, some action was happening. The last road out of Antioch had been taken by the Crusaders. Tancred himself had done it. Now the Muslims of Antioch really were cut off from resupply. There was only one way out, over the dead bodies of 50,000 hardcore Christian knights. Still the fighters grappled, and then the unthinkable was thought. The fear at the back of every crusader's nightmare suddenly burst out of their dreams and into reality. The Sultan of Baghdad had answered the desperate calls of his brothers at Antioch. Their army was more numerous than the granules of sugar in the sugar glass at Waffle House. That's literally how eyewitness Christians describe the relieving Muslim force. The Muslim army swarmed everywhere from the mountains and roads like sands in the sea. 40,000 Muslim troops were less than a week away from the Christian lines. The men rubbed their necks and wondered if they would still have their heads in a week's time. The Christian princes held a desperate last council. What should they do? Should they march out and meet the Muslim host in open battle before it reached the city? Or should they claw their way over the walls and shove the gates down the Islamic garrison's throat? That's when Bohemond stepped forward and coolly said, The man who can engineer the fall of Antioch should have legal right to the city, don't you agree? All the other princes readily agreed. But who can make the city fall? they asked. That's when Bohemond smiled the way a man smiles in his heart of hearts when he finally takes the woman he's pursued for long so too long. I can take the city, 
He gave the other princes time to pick their jaws up off the floor and told him his plan. An Armenian Christian tower guard inside the city named Furiz had secretly contacted Bowman. He was ready to betray his captors. Besides, the way the Muslims were killing the local Christians, it wouldn't be long until his head was being catapulted in the Crusaders' lines. No, he'd go over to the Christians. Thomas Asprich describes the coup de grace of Antioch, quote, On the night of June 2nd, a small group of Bowman's men used an oxhide ladder to climb an isolated section of the city's southeast wall where Firuz was waiting for them. Bowman's elite troops moved like ninjas, quickly and silently, without words, without a wisp of a breeze. They cut down the Turks in the three nearest towers, just like in an old World War II movie. One minute a Turkish guard was scanning the horizon for crusaders, the next second his vision suddenly blacked out, like a house losing electricity in the middle of the night, all is pitch black. Bowman's men slowly clinked a small gate open, chink, by single chink, the way thieves slowly open windows. That's when all the city suddenly awoke to the screams of 50,000 Christians yelling, Dies Volt! God wills it! God wills it! The first wave of attackers poured into the city just as smooth as sweet tea is poured from a pitcher. As the Muslim garrison tripped over themselves to beat back the attackers, they suddenly found themselves attacked from behind. The indigenous Christians had turned on their overlords and had rushed to open the remaining gates without armor, without weapons, wielding two-by-fours against fire-hardened steel, throwing their lives away to open a gate a few feet, their bodies piling up like products in a Sam's Club aisle. Such is the price of freedom. Freedom is the ability to act and not be nullified. It is to have power. And many of the Christians died to open those gates. But when they did, they were truly free. Such is often the price of freedom. Bullman himself was in the thick of the fighting, wielding his battle axe like a berserker, a worthy son of his Viking forefathers. He showed his pedigree on the walls of Antioch so far from the fjords of his grandsires, wielding his axe, his blue eyes reflecting the torchlight the way wild animals reflect the beams of a flashlight. He cut down his enemies without compassion. All in his path were slain, and his men acted likewise. Picture the scene. Wherever you are, I want you to look at your feet and see the ground strewn with human body parts the next person you see I want you to imagine a two inch gaping hole in their forehead like a carved jack-o'-lantern eye cyclopsing above their natural eyes close your eyes and see men in a pit of death crammed together so tight the ones in the middle can't even pick up their swords or move their arms through the streets quick as the stomach flew the crusaders pressed their advance screaming their war cry God wills it the deli slicer at Walmart splays apart the red muscle of roast beef every day. The low-paid worker jovially laughs as he butchers through pounds of flesh for the soccer moms waiting impatiently. The slices flow so easily, the deli clerk doesn't even have to think about his work. That was just the way the swords and axes sliced through the red flesh of the city's defenders. Human pepperoni littered the streets of Antioch. Then there were the swords and axes... Too blunt to cut. There was no slicing there. They simply jackhammered the limbs and faces of their enemies. Because behind the walls of Antioch was a second wall. A wall of men. And the crusaders were pulling down that second wall limb by bloody smashed limb. An eyewitness describes the capture of the city like this. Quote, Bowman was moved with the rest and all went joyfully to the ladder. Accordingly, 
When those men who were in the tower saw this, they began to shout with happy voices, God wills it! God wills it! Now the men began to climb up like diligent ants. Then they reached the top and ran in haste to the other towers. Those who they found, they straightaway sentenced to death, cutting their heads off in two, the way cattle are put down. They even killed a brother of Furus in their wild rage. Meantime, the ladder by which they had ascended broke by chance, whereupon there arose the greatest gloom among us. However, there was still a certain gate near us, which had been shut and had remained unknown to some of the people, for it was night. But by feeling about, we found it, and all ran to it, and having broken it open, we entered through it. Thereupon, the noise of a countless multitude resounded through all the city. Bowman did not give his men any rest, but ordered his standard to be carried up in the front of the castle on a certain hill. Indeed, all were shouting in the city together. Moreover, at dawn, the Christians outside Antioch heard the most violent outcry sounding through the city. They bolted to the open gates and saw the standard of Bohemund up on the mount, and with rapid pace all ran into the city, and they killed the Turks and Saracens who they found there, except those who had fled into the citadel. Others of the Turks fled through the gates, but Cassianus, the Turkish lord, fearing the race of the Europeans, greatly took flight. Their horses were worn out, and taking refuge in a certain villa, they dashed into a house. The inhabitants of the mountains, Syrians and Armenians, upon recognizing Cassinius, straightway seized him, cut off his head, and took it to Bohemond so that they might gain their liberty. Now the Christians channeled through the city the way rivers cut across England. They were everywhere. As dawn sent its orange glow across the morning sky, the great slaughter was just beginning. One contemporary writer noted the soldiers spared no Muslim on the grounds of age or sex. The ground was covered with blood and corpses. It was no wonder, because in the darkness they were entirely unaware of whom they should spare and whom they should strike. Another crusader described the scene like this. All the streets of the city on every side were full of corpses, so that no one could endure to be there because of the stench of death. Nor could anyone walk along the narrow paths of the city except over the ceaselessly staring eyes of the dead. Their haunting followed you. After the bloodshed came the looting. In the meantime, Bohemond raised his blood-red banner over the city, claiming it as his own property. Only the citadel... The highest point in the city, the small castle within the castle, remained in Muslim hands. The crusaders had taken the city. God wills it! He wills it! God will! That's when celebration stopped, literally. On the next day, June 4th, the Christians looked out over the fields they had just vacated to see the vanguard of a 40,000-strong Muslim army, an army with fresh troops not worn out from half a year of siege and starvation, and the Muslims poured around the city like high school spectators watching a fight. Now the Crusaders were besieged, trapped like the men they had just killed the night before. Their blank faces and two-by-four stiff limbs were a silent testament to the Christians likely fate. Let's just hope they get Furas away from the wall. You don't want him making another deal. And that's where we'll leave our crusaders hemmed in like chickens in a coop. Next month we'll pick right up where we left off with the second battle of Antioch and the end of the first crusade. You won't want to miss it. I might as well tell you to give me a five star review while I've got you here. And I want to thank Jenny from Fort Lauderdale for buying us around here at the North Georgia Bunker. But whatever you do, don't think I do this show for money. I do it for Simo and Marcus Luttrell for Lost Soldiers, who no one gives a damn about anymore. I give a damn. If you don't, I'm sorry for you. It's true, most people don't care about anything. But we're not most people. 
They're the weird ones to care more about a new cell phone and styling their hair than the martyrs who gave their lives for them. They're wrong. We're the sane ones. That's why most people make poor decisions. They care about the wrong things. Friends, care about the right things. Things like good times, good weather, and good people, and the memories of the men who died for us. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I won't turn off. Donate or don't donate. I'll keep going. If I have to tell these stories to stones, who knows? Maybe God will turn them into children of Abraham for me. Bye.